invite you to open your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 6 as we continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, a series we've titled Kingdom Manifesto. As one theologian, one Bible scholar has said, is that these words from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 are the closest thing to a manifesto that our Lord has given us, explaining to us what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. This morning we pick up in verse 19. Uh, continuing through the end of chapter 6. As you're turning there, I'm going to begin with a question. How do you know when the day ahead looks like it's going to turn out to be a bad day? Many of you probably know Alexander, who I could make my uh, alternate uh, personality or, but he's better known as a child's fiction character in the book, Alexander and the Horrible, Terrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. How do you know if you will belong in Alexander's category? It could be that when you wake up trying to be thoughtful to your sleeping wife that the night before you had laid out your shirt for work, only to find out that you laid on your shirt for work during the night and therefore had to change everything you were planning to wear, as was my experience this morning. <laughs> it could be that the bird that is perched outside of your windowsill, as you look, is a buzzard. That was not my experience this morning. It could be that when you leave your house, you find in your driveway the crew from 60 Minutes. Good indication that might not be a good day. Maybe it is, as the morning unfolds, you're at a surprise celebration from your work colleagues celebrating your birthday, but as they light the candles on the cake, the cake itself collapses from the weight of the candles. That's an indication that it's probably not going to be a very good day. And if those are things that are true for you or anything similar that has taken place, then you too can probably legitimately lament like Alexander that this has been a horrible, terrible, no good, and very bad day. If those things happen, it's time to take a nap and go back to bed. This morning as we look at our text, Jesus is dealing with an issue that would be related to that because the theme that permeates the verses that we're going to consider is that of anxiety, anxiousness, or angst. It's a word that we'll see that is repeated throughout this particular passage. When Jesus is addressing this, though, as we read it, one of the things I want to point out in advance so that our insights or our attention is, is more keen is that what Jesus says in this passage is different from a lot of times what we tend to hear. I suspect that most people, when they read these passages, and very rarely do these passages seem to get read all together, but rather kind of individually taking the instruction, but as they come all together, we tend to hear the whole idea about anxiety that Jesus just says, stop it. That's his entire counsel to us is we say the anxiety not good for you, just stop it. There can be probably nothing less helpful to tell somebody who is anxious that they need to stop it. I mean, think about the helpfulness of speaking with somebody who simply is experiencing hiccups and just saying, stop it. Is it going to stop anything? It's not. If somebody's experiencing anxiety, whatever the reason for their anxiety, telling them to just stop it, that it's wrong, and God doesn't like this, actually only heaps on more anxiety because now I have this whole idea of I'm failing God in addition to whatever problem it is that's causing my, uh, my stress in the first place. But Jesus, as we read this, does not 
do a stop it. He is not saying, as many of us tend to hear, the Bobby McFerrin song, you know, don't worry, be happy. That's not what he's saying. And for those of us who are more historically minded, Jesus in no way is suggesting the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Because he tells us in this passage, there is reason for fear. As we'll see at the very end of this passage, Jesus says, look, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough problems of its own. Tomorrow will bring its own problems. Very inspiring, encouraging words if you look at them only by themselves. Now there is an element of that when he does say in this passage as we read it is, can any of you add an hour to your, to your life if you, if you worry? And maybe that's why we get the idea that he's saying stop it. But what Jesus is saying is far more pervasive, far more helpful, and far more glorious than the idea of anxiety is bad, stop it. He is identifying us. He's identified with us. And he's pointing us to the hope that belongs to those who belong to him. With that understanding, let's go to the text this morning, beginning in verse 19, and hear what the Lord has to say for us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles also seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come with hearts that are in need of constant renewal and reassurance. We come as those who are the beneficiaries of your love as expressed through your instruction given by Jesus Christ. I pray that you would now, by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see ourselves, to know ourselves, and that that, as we come to the end of ourselves, would turn us to you. But as we turn to you, that we would see ourselves as you see us, as we see ourselves as you have promised that you will make us be. 
And you will enable us to trust in you, to rest in you, to delight in you, and to rejoice in you. Father, be at work during this time as we consider your word that we might more and more be set free from the shackles of anxiety and free to praise your grace that is at work and alive within us. We pray this for your glory and for our joy that is found in Christ. And we pray in him. Amen. Again, I hope it was obvious as we're looking at this that the theme that permeates these verses is that of anxiety. And it's not only that Jesus is speaking of anxiety in a way differently than we tend to hear him speaking, but he is speaking in a way that reminds us that anxiety is more prevalent than we are prone to think. Many of us look at anxiety and assume that it is some, whole, some part of a character of those who are weak or struggle with a certain temperament or personality type, or maybe even like the, the hypochondriacs that some of us know that just never seem to have a good day. They just, no matter what's going on, they have one malady after another, and so they're constantly physically ill. But we also know people who are emotionally constantly feeling as if they are under weight and and under oppression. But when Jesus is speaking in this particular passage, he speaks as if this is a very common thing, that the idea of anxiety is something that is not only a characteristic of weak individuals, but it is a characteristic that is common to all people. Think about some of the things that he says in here. One is the fact that he's speaking to his disciples, having withdrawn from the masses, he's speaking to those who are his closest followers. And he's giving them instruction, not only pointing out that they have uh, their own struggles, because he's speaking in a very personal way, but also pointing out the remedy for their struggle, as we'll explore later today. In his expression, he's telling the people one of the reasons that they don't need to be worried, his, his followers, that the one reason they don't need to be worried is that he points to even the people who are not his. He says, even the Gentiles worry about these things. Your Father in heaven, God knows that you need them all. And so he's saying that it's a very common thing that unbelievers, all unbelievers, have this uh, susceptible to this. And yet he's speaking as a way that uh, to believers, not some, not a certain type of believer, but to people. Jesus is speaking in a way that says that anxiety is common to all of us, and all of us are susceptible to it at one time or another. It's not merely the weak. One of the things that came to mind to remind me of this is a story that uh, some of you may be familiar, probably not many. You may know the name of Steve Blass. Most of you probably don't know that name. A few of you, those either with gray or no hair, particularly if you are from Pittsburgh, might know the name. Steve Blass was an all-star pitcher. Having been in the major leagues, uh, occasional all-star, he was a, a good pitcher, had won about 100 games in less than 10 years and not always a starter. Had been an all-star a couple of times, had won a couple of games in the World Series, and was a, just a very solid pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates. Wasn't headed for the Hall of Fame, but certainly a, a very respectable career. Then one day as he's standing on the mound, seeming to not necessarily have the control that he had known for the previous 10 years, almost 10 years of his career, he watches his catcher who gives him a sign of a pitch, and he has this what-if thought. And he throws a pitch that is somewhat wild but stopped by the catcher. Now he's racked by this adrenaline, but not the kind of adrenaline that 
brings energy and focus, but the kind that kind of gnaws and feels very empty and is draining. And as he looks to the catcher, something that he has been doing for his entire life and doing at the highest level for, more, uh, for almost a decade at this point in time, receives the catcher sign, lets loose of the ball, and the ball flies over the backstop, nowhere near the plate. He never regained his control. By the end of that season, he'd been sent back to the minors to see if they could not only recapture his physical command of his pitches, but also diagnose what it was mentally that was causing him to uh, go into such a state of anxiety that he wasn't able to pitch anymore. He couldn't find the plate. Every once in a while he would, or he would, but he just had no consistency whatsoever. And so each time he would take the mound, each time he was to throw, the what-ifs would continually grab him, debilitate him. The whole thing was chronicled in the New Yorker in an article end, uh, uh, of all, or, or gone for good, by uh, a guy named Roger Engel, who was considered one of the best baseball writers ever, and some could consider even that article in the New Yorker the best piece on baseball ever written. About a decade later, another promising baseball player, the second baseman for the Los Angeles Dodgers named Steve Sachs, found making a throw from the hole in second base, even to first base, something that he couldn't do. Tossing the ball into the stands, having to think, having to go through, to, he lost his entire confidence. And so, since he wasn't a pitcher, they decided they would name it after him. He was the Steve Sachs Syndrome. Baseball people call it the yips. And the reason I think that that was important is because the idea that anxiety belongs only to the weak, would seem to not fit these particular guys. They were at the height of their professions, a profession that required strength, physical stamina, and yet these men experienced it. The other reason that I think it's an important illustration for us is for both of these guys, they are a demonstration of people who are able to function and function at incredibly high levels. And then without warning and without notice, something creeping into their life debilitates them because of the anxiety, taking them from high functioning to ending their careers. It's a reminder to us that what Jesus, I think, is suggesting to us in this passage by speaking to it, not just in general, not as a throwaway uh, line, but as an intense issue for us to consider, is that any one of us is susceptible to the yips. Any one of us is possible to fall to anxiety. And while many of us are able to experience anxiety and still continue to function, others of you feel it, feel it on a regular basis and sometimes even fear that you will feel it even more, even to the point of debilitation. Jesus is speaking to us in this particular passage and he's speaking to those of you who have experienced anxiety and says you're not alone and it's not something that God is unaware of. And he's speaking to those of you who perhaps have not experienced it or figure that the idea is that we just muster through, muscle through and saying you need to be aware of how powerful, how devastating anxiety can be. Now, as Jesus is speaking and showing us that we deal with anxiety, we, any of us, all of us can experience anxiety in a way that can be paralyzing. He doesn't just demonstrate that for us, but he also, as the great physician, who one who knows us, he points out in our text the three common causes or three common causes of anxiety in our lives. 
The first one we see in verse, nine, in verse um, 19, where he tells us that holding our treasure in the wrong places is one of the causes for anxiety in our life. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy but where, and where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so Jesus is talking about our, our treasures, where we tend to invest our lives and our resources, that which we consider to be most valuable. Now, most people, as we look at this, we automatically assume money. And Jesus wants that thought to come to mind. But it's interesting, he doesn't use the word money in this passage. He just talks about our treasures. And the reason that he doesn't say money is because our treasures are more than just what we have in the bank. Our treasures are things that, get, that we value, whatever they may be. He makes that clear as he finishes this particular section when he says, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, it's whatever has a hold of your heart, that's what you treasure. And he's saying that we need to be aware of what our treasure is and where it is that we are banking our treasures. And he goes on a little bit further, even at the end of this particular section in verse 24 when he says, you cannot serve God and money, at least in the ESV, the word there is not actually money, at least not in the Greek and not as Jesus spoke it. The word is mammon. And mammon, while we associate that at times with money, and it may very well include money, mammon is a much broader category, a much bigger idol. Mammon is anything that gives you your sense of worth or your sense of value, your sense of identity, your sense of comfort. And the absence of it robs you of your sense of worth and your comfort and your sense of identity. And so mammon itself, being a broad category, can be different for me than it is for you. Or different for you at one point in your life from another point in your life. But mammon is whatever it is that has a hold of your heart. And Jesus says, be very careful of what your treasure is and where it is that you are seeking to bank with it in order to invest it. And then he gives us two very clear options. You can bank in the bank of the world, or you can bank in the bank of heaven. Those are the two options that he's laying out here before us. By saying that there are two options, that there's a bank of the world and there's a bank of the heaven, he's not saying that we should have nothing that we consider of value. We should have no possessions, and we should have nothing to do with banks or anything to do with the world. This is not an issue of saying that the world itself is evil. But he's pointing out what most of us should understand, and most of us know, but we do anyway, is we trust the world which is unstable and unprotected. And Jesus says, when you bank in the values of the world, when you want your identity to be invested in the things so that you're going to get your dividend of people's appreciation or whatever is considered valuable in the world, you're banking at your own risk. Because when you're banking in anywhere in the world, and he uses the imageries that moths can come and, and rust can come and thieves can come, these are all things that either tarnish or take whatever it is that we consider valuable. And he's saying that when we invest in the world itself, when we are seeking whatever is valuable in the culture, in the eyes of our culture, we are always in danger of losing that which we consider to be most valuable. The alternative that he says is that we then should store up our treasures in heaven. In other words, whatever resources God has given, we invest in such a way that there's a dividend being built up in heaven. That's the image that Jesus is giving to us. 
You hear about it elsewhere in the scriptures, and if you've been in church in any length of time, you, people talk about storing up treasures in heaven or getting crowns in heaven, things that are valuable that are in heaven. And so we as Christians, we who have been in the church for any length of time, kind of understand that that's what we're supposed to do and that's where our priorities ought to be. But if you are like most people, if you are like me for not only most of my life, but on any given day, the whole concept of that sounds very spiritual, but doesn't seem to be particularly practical. I mean, what, is it, what do we do? How do you bank heaven? How do you invest in the things of heaven? I think the overall teaching of scripture and certainly of the thrust of what Jesus here is on the Terminal of the Mount, teaching us what it means to be the citizen of the kingdom, says that we are to invest in those things that are the most valuable to the king of the kings, the king of the kingdom. Among them, I would think that it would be an investment in people. That's who Jesus came to save. That's who Jesus came to redeem. That's who Jesus came because he loved. We are commanded very clearly from Jesus that the primary command is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our mind, and our strength. But then Jesus says, but there's one that cannot be separated from it, and it's much like it, which is to love your neighbors even as much as you love yourself. In other words, Jesus is saying people are vital, important, because people are created after the image of God. It is people that God loves. It's people that God wants to redeem. It's people that God lives in relationship with. And it's people who are in need. It is people that Jesus came to give his life for. And so Jesus is saying to us, as we invest in the kingdom of God, how are we going to do that? One of the ways is that we see the needs and the opportunities of investing in people. It may be your neighbor or other believers that need encouragement and need love or accountability, ways that we can encourage one another to grow spiritually. It may be the outcast that nobody seems to love and that people seem to reject and that may not be natural for you to go to. But then we remember that's us and that's who Jesus came to. Jesus is calling us to invest ourselves in things that were last and people those whom God is calling and redeeming for himself are among those treasures. That was who God treasures and wants and desires and is sending us to. And so we invest ourselves in people in ways that encourage them and build them up, whether by establishing relationships or a demonstration or exercise of hospitality, by serving the needs of people who cannot serve themselves, seeking justice for those who are oppressed by the systems of this world just by praying for one another. We pour ourselves in, and as we pour ourselves into people, we are storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, which Jesus says nobody can rob, and it will not rust, and it will not tarnish, and it will not be eaten up by moths. Jesus says that it's not just enough to be interested in people, though, because if we look at that, there's many people that get confused and assume that the whole essence of life is that we invest in people. It is an indispensable aspect of life in the kingdom of God, but it is not the ultimate aspect. And if we do our lives for the benefit of people, while there is something good and there's something noble, there is nothing particularly valuable about it. The whole idea of a social gospel that our primary objective in life is just to help one another to get along minimizes the whole purpose for which we are created because our God, the King of Kings, has created us for himself. And he says that the issue is to give your life to benefit people, but bringing people into the presence of God. And to do so in order that they might experience what we have been promised and have experienced, which is the presence of God. But God does this, he says, for his own name's sake. Whatever he does, he says he does for his own glory. Makes us uncomfortable because it seems rather arrogant, but until we ask the question, who else should God do for? There is no one greater. 
So God invests in us, but for his own glory and says, I will not share my glory with another. And so as we invest in the kingdom, it really is a combination of in order to glorify God, we love those whom he loves. And we pour ourselves out for them for God's sake in order that they might know God, that together we might declare his praises. In these two areas, we store up for ourselves, build up for ourselves a treasury that is far greater than any retirement account that you might be building. And it is not in danger of being lost. See, we live in a culture that causes anxiety for our valuables, particularly for our money. We don't know how much we need to save for our retirements. And some of us have months, some of us have weeks, some of us have years. And even the youngest ones here, it's not really that long until that time where you're not able to provide for yourself. How much do you need? And even if you're able to accomplish that, how secure is it? The whole idea of Social Security is not promised even for somebody as old as me. We're bankrupting it. How about if the culture itself collapses, as many cultures absolutely have, all that you have saved, and yet there is no more country. And not making a prediction, I'm just saying that has happened through history, and everything that is saved is just gone. Not to mention that it comes sometimes it's stolen one way or another. Jesus says, look, you're anxious about this. One way to deal with your anxiety is to ask yourself, where is it that you are investing yourself? And realizing that the first cause for many of us of anxiety is that we hold our treasures in the wrong place. Secondly, we see that Jesus reminds us that anxiety comes because we see life or we see the world through flawed lenses. It's kind of the odd passage that seems, it seems odd here in verse 22 in the midst of all of these things when Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. It just doesn't seem to fit here, at least it, it doesn't to me, except that when we recognize that Jesus is giving an illustration of something that is a, a very pertinent issue for us. He's talking about the lenses by which we view the world, the lenses by which we see life, and he's using a metaphor here for us to understand. And it basically means this, is when eyes are healthy, then the whole body has light. The light enters the body, or we see based on our eyes. But develop a cataract or something else that blinds us to uh, being able to see an unhealthy eye, then the mind, the life, perspective, the whole body is filled with darkness. And Jesus is addressing that very issue, and he's reminding us that part of our anxiety is because we see the world through broken lenses. And all of us do because of the, because of the fall. We only see dimly, the scripture says, even those of us with the greatest of eyesight. But we need to understand that the dark spirit of anxiety causes us to be unable to focus on spiritual things, which is what gives us hope. And when we're unable to focus on spiritual things, which gives us hope, well, then our thoughts become distorted. And our responses to the situations that we feel are presented to us are mistaken because we're not responding to things as they really are. And it becomes a spiraling difficulty for us. Our lives then get built on faulty foundation because we are responding to things as they really are not. 
And this is very common, even the psychologists have, have documented the people that are struggling the most with anxiety in our culture. It's interesting because they say that 40% of the things that we stress most over are things that will never happen. It's the what ifs that cause the yips. 30% of the things that we stress over are things in our past that we can't do anything about. And yet, it's the what if in reverse. What if I hadn't? What if that hadn't? 70% of the things that cause us the most anxiety and there's not a thing that we are able to do about them because they're not even real anymore. They have nothing to do with the options or the obstacles that are before us. 12% of the things that cause us the most amount of angst are criticisms that are leveled by others, the vast majority of which is untrue or invalid. So now we're up to 82% of the things that cause us stress in our lives, according to psychologists, are things that aren't even real. There are things that are real. 8% are about real problems that we will be faced, that we will be facing. And about 10% of our stress is based on health, which gets worse when we stress about our health. Most of our problems aren't even real. But we see through flawed lenses. And it brings darkness. And Jesus even brings this in kind of a contrast, somewhat sarcastic, but nevertheless powerful when we see what he says. At the end of verse 23, he says, If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? We need to understand that Jesus who says, I am the light of the world, who've come to dwell within you. Anyone who believes has the light that dwells within them, that the light is to shine. But if we only see darkly, if the light of God within the believers, and he's speaking to believers, and we are those who are racked by anxiety because we are warped, because our eyes only see the world through the darkness of our failures, our past, or the what might be, and as radiant as Jesus' light is, and yet it's eclipsed by the darkness, Jesus says, wow. That must be some darkness if it's going to eclipse my light in your life and in your heart and your affections. We need to be aware that it's a very common thing for us because we only see in part to respond to that which isn't real. And Jesus says we need to just know this about ourselves. And then the third thing that he tells us that is a very common problem for us is serving the wrong master. And we see that in verse 24 when he says no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever had more than one job at a time. In some cases, it's a good thing. You need more than one job, and it helps you to pay the bills. It shows that you have a good work ethic. You're willing to sacrifice and do what needs to be done. And so there is something that is very good about that. I had five jobs at one time when uh, we were in seminary, uh, so not even counting that one. We had gone to seminary, and our plan was for Carolyn to take care of me in a manner in which I would like to have been accustomed for three years. <laughs> and somehow she got pregnant, and it wasn't our plan. And so she wasn't able to continue with the work that she was doing that was paying our bills, and we wondered what would happen. And God providentially enabled us to move into a college where Carolyn was the resident director, so we had a place to live for free, and she even got paid to do that. And he provided for me to have five different part-time jobs, only one of which I had certain expected hours, which is a youth pastor of a church. They kind of expected me to show up on Sundays. Um, but other than that, I was benefited because I had the flexibility of working around my classes and doing what I needed to do. 
But other people have two jobs because they have to pay the bills and the jobs both have set hours. And when you have a job, there are demands. And sooner or later, if you're trying to work two jobs, it's very likely that both bosses are going to want something that you can't do both. They're going to come in conflict and you have to decide which one is more important. Jesus is using this kind of a metaphor for us and saying, look, in the way that we live this life, we have to choose who has authority in our lives because you cannot serve two masters. And he uses the master of the world or the culture or the expectations, not necessarily a person, but he personifies it. And saying, look, if the one who drives you is what the culture says is good and right and successful, and you're getting your identity from the culture and you're getting your riches and your valuables from what the culture is able to provide for you, that sooner or later that's going to come at odds with what God calls you to do and calls you to be and says that you ought to do. One of the greatest illustrations that came to my mind was biblical, and it was that of Jonah, who vividly demonstrates this. Jonah, who was very proud to belong to God, never denying that he belonged to God, willing to praise God and declare the praises of God, was called to do something he didn't want to do. We need to understand that Jonah, being essentially Jewish, was called to go to the equivalent of that day of the Nazis and to go proclaim grace, that if you will repent, God will be merciful to you. If you are a Jew that was called to go declare to the Nazis that God would have mercy on you, it might be a tough sell. I wouldn't want to do it. Because of what they had done to my people, the viciousness, and the thing we need to understand is that the people he was going to, the Nazis, were minor league. They were JV compared to the people he was called to go to. And what was happening there is his sense of nationalism, his identity of a people, which is good, and his calling by God had come into conflict. Jonah is an illustration to us that most of us can go for the better part of our lives and for long stretches where we can have two masters, but sooner or later the day is going to come where the one master says one thing and God our master says something else and we have to choose. Now, Jonah's an illustration is also true of many of us is when that day comes, we usually get mad at God. How can you be so narrow-minded? Why can't I be happy? Why can't I have all of these other things? In fact, most of them are good. God doesn't respond to us in that because he knows that the fullness and the greatest things that we can have is being in him and that in him we find everything that we really desire. But we don't understand. And Jesus is saying a lot of our stress is because we are living with two masters. We are either afraid of the conflict or we have faced the conflict between whatever we desire that is ruling us and what God is calling us to rule us. And it makes us angry and it makes us anxious and it causes us frustration. These are very common. But the fact that Jesus lays these out, he's inviting all of us to look at our own lives and to say, okay, what is the source? Are any of these the primary sources of our angst? And to ask ourselves, where is our angst? These are comprehensive enough that likely we will find ourselves somewhere in here. And so all of us, whether we are prone to it or just have experienced it or all of us being susceptible, need to be aware where we are most likely going to be drained. But Jesus is a great physician, doesn't just point out and diagnose and say, here's your problem, go. Nor is he just kind of a, the pietist, here's your problem, I'll forgive you, just trust in me. 
Jesus is the great physician, diagnoses, and then offers a remedy. But the thing that, again, that is, should be understood here is the fact that he gives us a remedy is a reminder that we are not immune. You don't give remedies to people who are immune to issues or to diseases. It makes no sense. You give a remedy to somebody who is susceptible to it, whether they are in the midst of it or whether as, as a preventative. And Jesus gives us here in this text a couple of remedies for our anxiety. The first one of which is really rather stunning in its simplicity. The first remedy that Jesus gives us in this passage for our anxiety to overcome it or to minimize it is bird watching. It's what he says. I didn't make this up. Verse 26, look at the birds in the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Paul Tripp, the counselor and author, says, bird watching is good for your soul. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is calling our attention and saying, go look at the birds. He doesn't have to, you don't have to take up the hobby of ornithology and necessarily know everything about the different birds, although that could be beneficial. He said, just go watch. You know, from experience and from testimony of others, I know that they're just something that's beneficial, just going out and relaxing, and they're very peaceful and oriented, and it lowers the stress level just to be in the outdoors. Jesus said there's something more that's going on here. And he says it's not just bird watching. Really, it expands the whole thing to just get outside. Because he then goes on and said, look, look at the lilies of the field. They didn't do anything. And yet, they have more splendor than the king. And what he's telling us to do in the bird watching is to go and watch. Go down by the river as you see these birds that will circle, the eagles, as they circle and dive and plunge and come out with their prey. As they go back and forth, back and forth, and they are being provided for in the ordinary course of God's provision in the way that he's designed nature. And he says, look, they're majestic, and God loves them. But make no mistake about it, because even in the church we're mistaking this. As beautiful as animals are, people are more precious than animals. Your dog might be more likable than your neighbor, but your dog is not made after God's image. And there's a spiritual principle is not only is there a peacefulness of the experiencing of the outdoors, but there's a spiritual reminder of God who designed them in order that their needs are taken care of. He loves you more. So why would he not provide for what you need? And so those of you who are struggling with anxiety, get outside. Those of you who are worried about whether your life is ruined because you've got to be on an exam, go outside, take a walk, take a hike. Go watch the birds and remember, not only is there peace and rest, but God loves you even more. But Jesus doesn't leave it only there. As important as understanding the creation order, the redemption reality is even more important. And that's what Jesus highlights here and comes to as the, as the, as the high point. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the second remedy. And really, it's the ultimate remedy. See, we read that verse so often as if it means, okay, it means get your priority straight and then be good. Seek God and then be righteous. But that's not what he says. And we need to understand what he is saying here. Because what he is saying here is part of the remedy. One is understand the creation 
And second, in this verse, understand your redemption. He says, seek first the kingdom of God, there's a priority, and his righteousness, that word his, is vitally important and so often is overlooked. See, if he says, seek first the kingdom and righteousness, then it's about you being good. But if righteousness means right faith propelling right action, and it's his righteousness, we need to ask ourselves, what is God's righteousness? Well, God's faith, God's understanding, what God believed was he made man good after his own image, and yet we messed the whole thing up. We plunged ourselves in a depth that we couldn't escape from. We deserved his wrath, and we couldn't do anything to fix the problem. That's part of God's faith. God's faith also says, but I love them, and I'm going to redeem these people. And so his faith prompted him into action in the person of Jesus Christ, coming, becoming like us, laying down his life, dying for us, carrying on his own shoulders the punishment that we deserved, was crushed for our iniquities, and yet was raised for our salvation. That is God's righteousness. What Jesus is saying here is, look, you get some benefit from going out and recognizing, not just peace of going outside, and not even, and there's great benefit of just recognizing God loves you more than he loves creation and he takes care of creation. But the ultimate demonstration of his love is not found in his providence of stuff, but the providence of his son, Jesus Christ. And he's reminding us to remind ourselves of the gospel on a regular basis, to seek first the kingdom of God, which we experience because of his righteousness. Jesus Christ come in the flesh, died and rose again for us. There is no greater demonstration of God's love and your value to God than the fact that he has done that and by his spirit he has granted you faith to believe through which you receive every benefit. Jesus doesn't say that there is nothing to be stressed out about in this life, but he does say in this life that is full of things that would cause stress, those two realities will minimize your stress and bring you into relationship with God, which will give you a peace that might not make sense to others or even to us, but it is very real. And many of us, most of us, perhaps all of us have experienced, but for all who are in Christ, all who would believe, this is the promise and this is the remedy to the anxiety that debilitates us. And I'm overdue, but I'm just going to say this. For those of you who struggle with anxiety, I'm not suggesting that there is no other thing other than spiritual problems for anxiety. Some of it, I understand, is biochemical, and there's a need to address those things that's inherited. But the reality is much of our anxiety is a spiritual reality that we could minimize if we would simply recognize in our own lives our susceptibility and the glorious promises of God in his creation and his redemption given to us. Our stress levels die, and we learn to rest in him and rejoice in him, and seek him, and be with him. And in those things, we find that our peace overrides our anxiety or things that could cause anxiety. This is God's grace, not only to those who are feeling the weight, but to all who belong to him. May we turn our eyes to him and trust in his promise and find not only peace, but joy. Father, open our eyes to see you, where we find our rest, our hope, our joy. To your praise and glory, we pray and live. We pray in Christ. Amen.